You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, it's a bit nippy out there, but uh, we're all inside now because we're in a, a, a snap lockdown for uh, another five days. So, well, finishes on. Tuesday at midnight, uh, unless something further happens. Uh, today on the program, we're going to sort of investigate the uh, sports world and uh, general uh, lack of uh, government, federal government uh, adherence to uh, the rule of law, which has been floating along as a metronome uh, pulse. Uh, behind this particular LMP government throughout its years, and <clears throat> Professor Anne Toomey from the, uh, she's the professor of constitutional law and the director of the constitutional reform unit at Sydney University. She was speaking at a, uh, a um a meeting held by the Centre of Public Integrity. You may not have known that there was actually a Centre of Public Integrity, but they've been watching this ball for a while, and she outlines what was so egregious about the approach by the LNP government with its uh, pork barrelling. Now, the general feeling is that... um, I, you know, doing a straw poll was, oh, well, they all do it. But uh, the importance of this particular type of behaviour at uh, such a high level of government is, uh, cannot be, um, uh, talked about enough because it's one of the most important elements of uh, government that it does not increase uh, public corruption. Uh, so I think it's worth listening to an informed and uh, experienced uh, constitutional lawyer talk about this. So uh, we've got a chance to hear from Professor and Toomey today. Um, we're going to talk to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth about the recent um, uh, removal of um, Victoria's uh, conventional onshore gas exploration and uh, we're going to find out what that actually means. Uh, We're going to uh, follow up uh, Andy Payne from the um, uh, No No Coals Action Group up in Queensland who have been uh, doing the hard yards around the Adani exploration and uh, they recently were involved in stopping... um, uh, 
the um, trucks going into uh, the mine, Carmichael mine, where they've found coal, but also they've also found a bank, a Japanese bank, that are bankrolling them. So we're going to find out a bit more information about that. Uh, but before we do, I've got a, f- a few pieces of updates regarding the refugee issue out at the uh, MITRE um, institution out in uh, Broadmeadows. Uh, it was reported that the hunger strike had uh, stopped, but uh, a group of Medivac uh, refugees at the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation Unit have restarted their hang- hunger strike protest to demand their release from the detention. Uh uh, 12 refugees are refusing food. Uh, it started on Thursday the 15th of July. Um, Monday 19th July marks the beginning of the 19th year of offshore detention um, begun by the Rudd government in 2013. It marks the beginning of the ninth year of detention of the Medivac refugees still held in detention centres and hotels in Australia. Uh, We are very tired, one of the hunger strikers told the Refugee Action Coalition. Next Monday, we are nine years in detention. No one can tell us why. Since our last hunger strike, we did not get any answers. Around 90 of the 193 refugees transferred under the Medivac legislation are still in detention two years since they were transferred to Australia from Nauru. Uh, Over... 100 Medivac refugees were released on bridging visas between December 2020 and February 2021, but only one uh, who has since been flown to the US for resettlement has been released since February. And despite government announcements in February that it was government policy to release the Medivac refugees, Minister Karen Andrews has refused to say why releases have stalled or given a timetable for their future releases. A series of federal circuit court cases have revealed that many of the Medivac refugees have not had any medical treatment since being transferred to Australia. The government is also armed with the June High Court decision uh, in that found that even if the government was not holding them for the temporary purpose of their transfer or making an arrangement for their removal, their ongoing indefinite detention was lawful. The Medivac refugees have been the victims of offshore detention and are now just pawns in the government's political games. There is no explanation for why half should have been released and half are still in detention, said Ian Rindall, spokesperson for the Refugee Action Collective. So the trauma continues. Uh, there was a very interesting development in regards to the uh, health um, uh, and safety uh, um, of the uh, Tamil girl, the Bialoala uh, Tamil girl who um, who was taken to Perth with her family. Um, on the 13th of July, 2021, Comcare, the Federal Regulator of Workplace Health and Safety, emailed Max Costello, a member of the Refugee Action Collective in Victoria, to advise that in relation to the concerns you raised about the medical care of Thanika Muragaban between May and June 2021, Comcare has opened 
has an open inspection. Now, uh, this was uh, related to Max Costello, um, who for the Refugee Action Collective said in May, Thonika, then aged three, was being held with her mother, Priya, and father, Hades, and six-year-old sister, Kopika, in an immigration detention facility, a a small cabin on Christmas Island. The concerns raised were that the neglect of Thanika's health involved apparent criminal offences against the Work Health and Safety Act 2011, which applies to all Commonwealth workplaces, including the IDFSs. Comcare's role is to monitor and enforce compliance with this Act. So all IDFSs are operated by the Australian Border Force Unit of the Department of Home Affairs, whose minister is Karen Andrews. It used to be Dutton. Uh, International Health and Medical Services Proprietary Limited is contracted by the Commonwealth Government to provide health care to IDF detainees. ABF oversees the work of IHMS. You've got all the uh, numbers, uh, letters in order. It means that Comcare is able to actually investigate. On or about the 20th of May, as reported by Rebecca Holt in the Sunday paper, Thonika caught a cold, but after four days, a fever and flu-like symptoms developed, and she was actually getting pneumonia. On day 13, 5th of June, her temperature had reached 39.9 degrees. Next day, she was taken to the local hospital where a blood sample was taken. On day 15, the 7th of June, an emergency air ambulance flight took her and Priya, her mother, to Perth. Thanika is now an outpatient of Perth's Children's Hospital. Comcare is investigating whether Thanika's health care complied with the WHS Work Health Safety Act. It imposes on Commonwealth workplace operators such as Home Affairs, um, ABF, a duty to proactively and preventatively self-card the health and safety of both workers and other persons at their workplace. Thanika is one of those other persons. Non-compliance with that duty is a heavily penalised criminal offence. So we should watch this space. This is a very important development. Uh, Just uh, as a little aside uh, for people who may be interested in finding out more about how um, our policy in Australia and the difficulties that refugees actually have um, in um, their uh, flight from uh, dangerous situations in their own countries. Uh, You might note that there's a very interesting film on at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. uh, It's a film by Bharat Ali Batur, who now works at Ames in Melbourne. Now, he's actually a photojournalist. He's from Afghanistan. And this film is a fascinating um, investigation of the journey from Afghan Afghanistan uh, fleeing danger, coming right across uh, down the trip that it takes a person to Indonesian um, uh, refugee settlements and uh, their uh, 
the reasons for why someone would get on a leaky boat, uh, where, um, as one of the people in this film says, originally I thought the chances of dying by drowning would be 1%. Now we think it's 99% chance of drowning. It's a absolutely captivating film because, of course... Barat is a journalist and a photojournalist and he almost compulsively um, records his entire journey and the footage is not only terrifying but uh, completely uh, revealing. So uh, that is on uh, during uh, the week. Uh, next week start, It's on next week on at the Nova. So, it, I mean, assuming COVID doesn't uh, stop you from getting um, to see it, it's Batur, A Refugee Journey. So that's worth your while looking up if you're confused about why this is such a hair-raising issue. COVID restrictions across Victoria have changed. New changes have been introduced to slow the spread of COVID-19 by reducing the number of people leaving their homes and moving around Victoria. This means that you can only leave your home for one of five reasons. Shopping for necessary goods and services care and caregiving, including medical care and getting a COVID-19 test, exercise, authorised work and permitted study, or to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Victorians may also leave home to visit their intimate partner, their single social bubble buddy, or in an emergency, including those at risk of family violence. You must stay within five kilometres of your home for shopping and exercise. This limit does not apply to work when giving or receiving care, getting a COVID-19 vaccination, or visiting an intimate partner or your single social bubble buddy. Face masks must be worn indoors and outdoors whenever you leave home unless you're working alone. These actions will protect our loved ones, friends, colleagues, healthcare workers and the community. That's right. All the necessary information for the SNAP lockdown. We'll see what happens after um, midnight on Tuesday. Um, as I was saying, that, uh, the issue of pork bar- barrelling uh, coming out of the LNP as we come closer to an election. But generally, the uh, fa- fabric of society in Australia is actually threatened by this kind of flagrant behaviour. And uh, I was lucky enough to listen to Professor Anne Toomey going through the reasons for why people should be alarmed, uh, not just by the unfairness of it, but by the intrinsic danger to our democracy. Uh, This uh, uh, was taken from um, an event put on by the Centre of Public Integrity and uh, Professor Anne Toomey A.O. is the Professor of Constitutional Law and the Director of the Constitutional Reform Unit at the Sydney University. Couldn't have been a better person to tell us what actually happened and why it is so egregious. Right. Well, while there has been um, a great deal of debate about what the rule of law actually means, one thing is certain, and that is that it requires that government cannot dispense with the rule of law or cannot dispense with laws and must itself obey the law. And that includes the Constitution. Now, despite this certainty, governments in recent times have taken a much more cavalier approach to the rule of law. They instead ask, what they describe as the rule of constitutional risk. Now, this involves assessing not only what the risk is that the Commonwealth is acting unlawfully in relation to particular actions, 
but also the risk that someone will bring legal proceedings that reveal that the government is breaching the law. And if that risk is low, then the government is prepared to continue acting unlawfully. Essentially, it seems that the rule of law has been replaced by the rule of what you can get away with. Now, this is starkly evident when it comes to funding grants to community bodies. Governments these days make grants blatantly and unashamedly on the basis of obtaining political advantage rather than on the basis of merit or need. Now, this results in the unfair distribution of public funds, the funding of unworthy or even unviable projects. We often see funding withdrawn because it was never possible to do the project anyway. The inefficient allocation of scarce resources, poor planning, and a lack of coordination with other levels of government in providing appropriate local facilities. In short, it results in bad government. Now, the exorbitant costs of such schemes, which now runs into billions of dollars, also imposes a heavy economic burden on the country and particularly on future generations. During a time when governments are having to run huge deficits to deal with a pandemic, you would imagine that some effort would be made to pull back on unnecessary and wasteful spending of public funds for political advantage. But no, the younger generation will pay and will pay enormously in the future for the profligacy of government vote buying schemes today. And let's be clear, these schemes are primarily used for vote buying. The sports rorts, uh, scheme to swimming pools and car parks, none of these schemes fall within Commonwealth areas of policy responsibility, and all of them have involved grants being made, announced or promised prior to elections, where the money has been largely targeted at, um, at particular seats held or desired to be held by the party in government. We've seen the colour-coded spreadsheets. We've read the Auditor General's reports. There is just no hiding this. Economists have also shown that such spending can shift votes up to around 2%. And in a tight electoral contest, whichever party has the advantage of incumbency, and remember, it might be the party that you um, oppose, whichever party has that advantage can use public money to buy an election outcome. Now, politicians do it because it is effective at distorting democratic outcomes. They know this. It is not a miracle outcome. It is an election which is bought by taxes paid by hardworking Australian families. Now, most recently, it was suggested that the fact that the government won the election was justified such actions. Apparently, the votes of people have the effect of laundering the misuse of public money in vote buying exercises because the exercise was successful. In my opinion, using public money for political party gain rather than public good is never acceptable, especially if it is successful in altering the democratic outcome of elections. But beyond the ethics of such behaviour is the issue of the rule of law. Is it lawful? And why does no one seem to care that it's not? 
The Commonwealth's Community Sports Infrastructure Grant Program, which is colloquially known as Sports Rorts, provides a classic example of breaches of laws and self-imposed government standards on multiple levels. The program revealed in, sorry, the problems revealed in this program turn up in different combinations in various other programs. So not all of them will appear in car parks, et cetera, but some of them do in different variations. Uh, and these affect grants on swimming pools, regional grants, community grants, safer community grants, car parks, et cetera. Now the problems are endemic throughout the system and the flagrancy of the breaches is growing. Indeed, on the same curve as the coronavirus has been growing in Sydney, and that is exponential. So let's start with the Constitution. The first problem is the breach of Australia's most fundamental law, the Constitution. Now, it must be screamingly obvious to anyone without any training in constitutional law that the people who wrote the Constitution would not have intended or authorised the Commonwealth to deal with local matters such as resurfacing the local footy oval or constructing the local car park. Unsurprisingly, they gave the Commonwealth the power to deal with matters uh, that involved international matters such as external affairs, aliens, immigration, defence, etc. Matters that cross state boundaries, interstate trade and commerce, interstate industrial disputes, and things that need to be dealt with in a unified way across the country. So your currency, intellectual property, marriage. The Commonwealth Parliament was limited to specific heads of power and everything else was left to the states, including the establishment of local government to deal with local matters. Now, while some small aspects of the Commonwealth sports funding program might be supported by the external affairs power to the extent that they give equal access to sporting facilities to women and the disabled in accordance with some treaty obligations Australia has, the vast majority of grants do not fall within Commonwealth power and are simply unlawful. The High Court made it very clear in a number of cases in recent times, the Pape case and the Williams cases, that the Commonwealth Parliament must legislate to authorise the making of grants and that that legislation has to be supported by a Commonwealth head of power. The Commonwealth Government, however, does continue to defy the High Court and keeps on spending on subjects that are not within its competence based upon this notion of constitutional risk. The calculation is that the only people who will have standing to challenge these grants are the recipients of them, and no one who is given a present rejects it and then sues the government for giving it to them, unless you're Brian Pape or Ron Williams, two um, extraordinary outliers um, in relation to these matters. Now, what is most interesting to me anyway, is that while constitutional scholars, so they're not just me, but also Cheryl Saunders, Michael Cromlin, Jeff Lindell and others, have raised concerns about the invalidity of these grants on numerous occasions, including to parliamentary committees, the opposition makes very little of it. And it's not pursued, unlike all the complaints about bias in the giving of grants. There's plenty of noise and anger about that, but virtually nothing on the legality of the grants. Why? Because the opposition also has an equal interest in unlawful spending in the future. They anticipate that some 
day, they'll get back into government and they can then do the same things. Neither side seems to care sufficiently about the importance of the rule of law to put a stop to these breaches. Now, while the audit office has done sterling work in calling out bias in the application of grant money, along with inefficiency and waste, it does not make any assessment about the constitutional validity of the funding or even its legality because it does not have the legally qualified staff to do so. At most, it raises queries about the legality of grants, as it did in relation to the sport, sporting grants program. In the absence of some kind of independent determination of unlawful behaviour, it is very hard to pin consequences on the government for their actions. But the obvious disrespect for the rule of law still does have an effect, even if it's not reflected in the ballot box. It seriously erodes public trust in government and compliance with the law by the public. People think, well, why should I have to obey the law if the politicians don't? And this is how corruption flourishes. It starts from the top. The more respect um, for the rule of law is eroded by people seeing it flouted on a regular basis by those who are in charge, the more we head into third world levels of corruption and graft. It is a dangerous path that our politicians are blithely pursuing simply to gain advantage at the next election. And I have to say, I ask myself frequently, don't any of them care about the serious damage that they are doing to the system of government by eroding respect for the rule of law? Do any of them think at all beyond the idea of winning? The notion abounds amongst politicians that the means are justified by the ends, that it's okay to abuse the rule of law and to make unlawful grants to buy an election outcome, because in the end, the success of your side in that election is for the benefit of the country. Even if that were objectively true, and people can have different views about it, in the short term, it is not true in the long term. The erosion of the rule of law and the seeding of future corruption are profoundly worrying. We are set on a trajectory with horrific ends, yet our own leaders cannot see beyond the immediate glittering prize of the next election. Now, the sports rot scandal um, revealed more than breaches of the constitution. It showed failures as a matter of law on multiple levels. So first here, we start with lawful authority. There was no lawful authority for the minister to make the grants. And this is because the statute allocated the grant making function to Sport Australia, a statutory body, and the funds were appropriated to it to spend, not to a government department and not to the minister. The minister had limited powers under the act to direct Sport Australia. Any directions had to be in writing, had to be tabled in parliament and no such directions were made. There was no power for the minister to act as the delegate of the commission in deciding which bodies were funded. The minister and Sport Australia could not even get their story straight about how the minister was entitled to act as she did. She said she relied on executive discretion. She's the minister, so therefore she gets to tell departments, etc., what to do. Except this wasn't a department. 
it was a statutory authority and there was a statute which specifically limited her powers. Whereas Ford Australia argued that the minister wasn't making the decisions, even though the minister argued she was making the decisions, Sport Australia said that they just coincidentally changed all their decision-making to match her suggestions. Basically, the minister exercised a power because she wanted to, even though she had no legal power at all. It was unlawful, but neither the public servants nor Sport Australia called it out and stopped the minister. Indeed, Sport Australia actively facilitated it by abandoning its own decisions as to who should receive the grants and replacing them uniformly, 100%, with the decisions of the minister. Now, this suggests an overly compliant public service because the minister's own department did nothing about it and a servile statutory body none of them were prepared to enforce the rule of law in the face of a ministerial desire to act contrary to it. The next area where there was also potentially breaches is in relation to financial legislation. There are legal obligations on ministers about approving and making grants under the Public Governance Performance and Accountability Act. Ministers must be satisfied that the spending of public money is efficient, effective, economical, and ethical. Grants made for political advantage in targeted seats are unlikely to satisfy those requirements. While there is no associated penalty in the Act for breaching that provision, it is still a legal requirement. It is law. Ministers are, according to the rule of law, required to obey the law regardless of the existence of penalties. In addition, breaching this particular law would also be relevant to any administrative law challenge to their decision-making. All right, next point, further area where there were breaches, grants rules. At the Commonwealth level, the grants rules are statutory rules and therefore have the effect of law. Ministers cannot approve grants without receiving written advice from officials on their merits and must record in writing the basis for their, their approval relative to the grant guidelines and the key principles of achieving value for money. Now, these are very sensible and appropriate rules. If ministers approve grants that are not recommended, they must report to the finance minister giving their reasons. Now, in the case of the sports grants, it was claimed that these rules did not apply. Why? Because it was a statutory authority rather than the minister who was making the decisions, despite the fact that the minister thought that the minister was making the decisions and so did Sport Australia. Nonetheless, um, at least on my reading of the rules, they did apply to the minister in these circumstances and the minister did not comply with them. And even if they didn't apply, Sport Australia had an equivalent set of rules and there was no compliance with their rules either. Finally, we get to the issue of administrative law. Yes, it is law. When ministers are decision makers, or even when public servants are decision makers, they must debate the rules of procedural fairness. They must act within their legal power. They must not act for an improper purpose. They must not take into account irrelevant considerations. They must not act in a biased way. And let's face it, it would be difficult 
in the face of the Auditor General's report to see how the Minister's behaviour was consistent with all of those standards. So you see on multiple levels here, serious problems in relation to the rule of law and the application of it in relation to this example. So some suggestions as to what should be done about it. Okay, first one, and you may think this is a bit odd, but I think it's actually really important, education. We need to educate ministers and their advisors, so the people in the ministerial offices, as to the constraints on ministerial power. It became apparent during the parliamentary committee hearings that the minister had no idea about the true scope of her powers and saw legality as a mere technicality which should have been sorted out by somebody else, okay? I'm the minister, I get to exercise my powers. If there are any problems, somebody else should deal with it, but I should still be able to exercise the powers the way I want. Uh, the only edu education that ministers actually receive is in how to obtain power. They're very good at learning how to climb the greasy pole, but most of them are clueless as to how the government system works and how they must exercise the very considerable powers that they do receive, particularly under statute. Now, the importance of the rule of law and the obligation to comply with it needs to be explained and impressed upon ministers. Secondly, public service independence. Uh, there needs to be more done to ensure that public servants are obliged by law and as a condition of their service to inform the minister about any legal constraints on his or her power. They should also be protected from retaliatory action for giving ministers advice that they don't want to hear. All such advice should also be in writing and critically made available to any investigating parliamentary committee. Only then can there be proper accountability of ministers to parliament. In the sports grants controversy, far too much material was refused to be produced by the government to the parliamentary committee that inquired into it, including all the legal advice to the extent that there was any. Um, thirdly, the Auditor General's office needs to be properly funded through an independent method um, and to be fully staffed, including with a legal branch, so that people can actually make assessments as to the likely lawfulness of government action and the constitutionality of government spending, which is something that is not assessed. Uh, fourthly, we need an effective and properly funded independent corruption commission uh, to investigate allegations of corruption and to make public fundings. And finally, we need legislation to be enacted to govern the grants process in a comprehensive manner so that grants are only given on the basis of merit and public need following applications that are assessed by reference to publicly advertised criteria following appropriate consultation with other levels of government. There should be no exceptions for election promises or because the administering body is a statutory body. Um, so let me conclude here um, with a, just a couple of observations. First of all, if you raise these kinds of concerns with politicians, first of all, they'll roll their eyes and say you're terribly naive. And then they will say, first of all, well, the other side does it or will do it, so we should too. Now, look, frankly, you wouldn't accept such an argument from a 10-year-old so you shouldn't accept it from politicians either. Next, they will say, well, these are all just technical rules and the ordinary people don't 
care about that. They just want stuff done and they don't care what level of government does it. So why shouldn't the government fund, Commonwealth fund these things rather than state or local government? But I think if you took a straw poll of whether ordinary people think that politicians should obey the law and the constitution and not use public money for their own political advantage, I'm pretty confident that they would agree and that they would care. Finally, politicians will say, oh, look, these are all good projects and we shouldn't be depriving people of football ovals or car parks and your proposals would mean that nobody would get this money or these facilities. Well, look, if they are good projects, they can still be done through lawful means. Grants can be made to local governments through states under Section 96 of the Constitution to fund local sport, local car parks, and it can be done on the basis of merit and need in a properly coordinated and effective way. Complying with the law does not mean denying people facilities. On the contrary, it's in fact likely to result in more and better facilities because the money is more likely to be spent in an efficient, properly planned manner. But then the Commonwealth politician will argue, well, what is to stop the state or local government from applying the money, grant money to their political advantage? So this is getting back to your 10-year-old's argument of, of saying, well, hang on a minute, if then somebody else does it, they'll do it corruptly, so I should be able to do it corruptly instead. <sighs> Again, the answer here is proper laws and conditions being placed on funding to require that it be spent um, according to clear criteria and be done appropriately. Ultimately, there is no excuse for the abuse of government grants. It is wrong at every level. But worst of all, it undermines the rule of law and it destroys trust in the democratic system of government. Thank you very much. I'll end my rant there.
Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Cam Walker on the line. Cam, of course, is from Friends of the Earth. G'day, Cam. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, and I wanted to talk to you about uh, the announcement made by the uh, Victorian government that uh, it's, well, it's called giving the green light to conventional onshore gas exploration, but bans fracking. Uh, Is there any good news in this? The lifting of the moratorium is not good news. It's it's a bad news story. Um, As we know, Victoria does have the first permanent ban on fracking in the country, which is fantastic, and that's now in the state constitution. But the other side of the deal that came with that announcement was that the moratorium on what they call onshore conventional gas drilling, which has been in place since 2014, has now lifted. Mm. And what does it mean? uh, To tell our listeners what that actually means. So I think the first thing to remember is the moratorium and the ban on fracking only happen because of community campaigning. And it's always good to remember that, you know, if you struggle, you can win. And if you don't struggle, you're always going to lose. So it's good to acknowledge that this was a great community win. But the lifting of the moratorium now opens up the state uh, pretty much, if you can imagine, the state south of the divide, uh, right across through Western Victoria and a big chunk of Gippsland from the Latrobe Valley down to the 90 Mile Beach is now open for onshore gas exploration. There's a series of stages a company has to go through. They do the initial exploration and then if, if there's enough resource there and it's viable, then they commercialise it. But what it does mean is that pretty much from any time now, companies can opt in and start to drill for gas. And the interesting thing in Victoria, there was a thing called the Victorian Gas Program, which was a government program that kind of looked into the state of the industry here. And even the government's own report acknowledged that if we drilled all the conventional gas, it won't actually bring down prices. There isn't enough gas to do it. Um, You know, gas prices are only going one direction and that's up and that's because it's a non-renewable resource and as we know non-renewable resources as they get towards the end um, they become more expensive but it does mean that pockets of Victoria and it's likely to be localised pockets like around Port Campbell and potentially sections down towards um, Longford and uh, Sea Spray down on the 90 Mile Beach will come under exploration over the next year or possibly next couple of years. So the most beautiful spot, some of the most beautiful spots in Victoria. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uncanny, isn't it? (laughs) It it is interesting. And, And of course, it's matched with the offshore gas release. Um, And we have uh, an acreage release that happened in 2018 in Victorian waters, which I think is about within eight kilometres of the coast. And that goes from Port Campbell past, you know, all that beautiful coastline, Twelve Apostles, Lockhart Gorge, right across to Portland and Mm. beyond that to the South Australian coast. And then we've got the recent Commonwealth acreage release, which was 80,000 square kilometres. It's a massive chunk of marine uh, environment and that includes in Bass Strait and in Gippsland and in Bass Strait um, it's going to go down as far almost as King Island in Tasmania so also really beautiful landscapes that are at threat from new offshore oil and gas. Oh, that's amazing and uh, uh, now uh, if you look at the uh, 
press release that was put out, it's all very carefully managed and uh, it talks about the uh, lead, Victoria's lead scientist, Amanda Kappels, found there were gas reserves in Victoria that could be extracted without harming the environment. That's, I mean, it's, talk about a curated piece of language, that. Oh, curated and that... Uh, announcement and the the methodology behind it, which was the Victorian Gas Program, which released five quite substantial reports over probably a three-year period, have been soundly criticised on a couple of fronts. And the really obvious one was it appears to overstate the number of jobs that will be created if we did drill all that gas. Um, and uh, this is what industry does all the time. You know, they, they say, oh, there'll be thousands of jobs and then you get a couple of hundred. But the media, of course, then parrots there will be thousands of jobs. So the gas industry, like the fossil fuel industry in general, tends to radically overestimate the number of jobs that will be created. But even the re- that report, which Amanda Kappel was responsible for, acknowledges that the gas, if we do drill it all, um, it it won't fill the shortfall in existing supplies and it won't bring down prices. So you have to ask, well, why are we going to do this? Because it will industrialise rural landscapes in places like, you know, Timboon and that great dairy country down in the, the southwest. And it will be uh, a source of significant greenhouse gas emissions at a time when the Victorian government has committed to reduce emissions every five years towards a net zero emission target by mid-century. So it's, it's inconsistent with the government's own position. It's not going to bring our prices down and it's going to mess with with farmland. So you really have to ask, well, why are we going to do it? Now, there's a couple of things before we get into the actual figures that they put out regarding um, this uh, jobs creation. Uh, it's very interesting that Dr. Kappels is, is cited as the scientist, but uh, she actually steps into the land of politics when she is quoted as saying over 80% of the community in the southwest of Victoria and in Gippsland are supportive of exploration and development. Now, that's stepping into fair and square into opinion. Yes, uh, it is, and there's also been some serious criticism about the methodology around the surveys they did, and the Australia Institute did a really um, fantastic uh, bit of work looking at that. Um, They felt that the questions were kind of like, not push-polling, but they were kind of leading, um, in that the way the results were clumped together gave a kind of, uh, you know, an overstated feeling of how how much people could accept uh, gas being produced in their area. But the figure, and I don't have the figures in front of me, but I remember it was well under 20% of people feel that having new gas operations in their area would improve their community, which means that over 80% of people were opposing it. And yet the way the results of the surveys were brought out um, kind of implied that most people could quote live with it as opposed to embrace it yeah and and then it goes on to talk about um dr uh, mr andrews said natural gas would be extracted under the highest standards and production of the resource could generate more than could generate more than 310 million dollars annually for regional economies and create 6400 jobs now we're talking about economies that are uh 
always um, under uh, strain and threat because people pay are paid less in the country and their jobs, uh, you know, they depend on large uh, resource structures or factories, which then may disappear. Yeah, yeah. So the whole release of this was kind of overblown and there was quite a bit of hype. So... Um, the Victorian government, I think, relied on some modelling that was done by a consultancy uh, which said, oh, there might be up to 6,400 jobs and that was split between about maybe 4,000 direct jobs and 2,000 indirect jobs and, you know, it was going to be fantastic for the regions. But then when you actually drill into it and when you go back to the original reports, um, I think the maximum of positions that were going to be created was to the order of about 250 so not 6,400, but 250. And that was a best-case scenario and that it could be um, as little as 78 direct jobs created if they really? couldn't access all the gas, yes. And that was directly from the Victorian government's own report. Um, so then there was, like, this huge amount of spin that was put on that, that there'd be, you know, this amazing number of jobs and most of them were going to be um, in Western Victoria... And then, of course, you think, well, this is what the industry does. You know, think of the Adani Carmichael coal mine and they, you know, were saying there'd be more than, well, up to 10,000 jobs. And then it was, I think it came down to about 1,000 direct jobs. So we, whenever you hear anything from industry, and unfortunately in this instance, our Premier has kind of parroted the sort of line you expect from industry, when you hear jobs figures and when you hear economic returns, you have to, you know, turn your little filter on and go, okay, well, if I'm going to listen to that, I'm going to go and look at the data myself. And we need to understand that this industry, as a matter of course, tends to overstate the potential jobs that will be created. And they do that because they know that people want jobs and they want economic activity. And so they assume that people will therefore kind of, you know, park their rational brain and say, yay, lots of jobs, let's go with it. But you've always got to drill into the details when someone's going to make a lot of money off something that they're pushing. And then they spread the love and they talk about uh, business groups welcome certainty as co coronavirus hits the economy. Resources Minister... Jacqueline Symes says a royalty system was already in place and estimated it could generate $43 million a year for landowners, which could flow back to regional communities. Now, this is a direct uh, attack on many landowners who are already um, standing up and protesting against the um, use of their prime uh, land, uh, agricultural land for gas production. Yes, and there is already gas production in parts of Western Victoria. And if you go into that area kind of in around the, you know, kind of Timboon area, there is some gas infrastructure there and that will allow them to do further offshore gas. And, of course, we have gas industry uh, in Gippsland uh, that's offshore, but that, of course, has to come onshore and we've got the plant at Longford. Like, we do have infrastructure. We know what it looks like. We know how it industrialises landscape. We know how it transforms that landscape. Um, and it does have, you know, impacts on farmland, direct impacts, but the risks 
of conventional gas drilling are much less than the risks of what they call unconventional gas drilling, which is coal seam gas and shale gas and tight gas where they have to use the process of fracking. But there are still risks and there are still impacts. So I think this kind of gloss by the Victorian government that there will be heaps of jobs and landowners will get money, you know, it, it, it is a furphy. Uh, we know that wind uh, turbines also provide money to landowners without destroying the land uh, and without risking contamination. The Victorian government is doing a great job on promoting renewables. It's disappointing that they're trying to kind of play both sides of the roads on this. If they've committed to net zero emissions, if they're promoting renewable energy as they are, and which is fantastic, they need to just stand on that side of the road, you know, and keep going with that. They've they've made all their good announcements about batteries. They've got the solar homes program. They're getting lots of panels on roofs. They're doing a really good job on that front. And they're not going to get much bounce out of this gas. There won't be a lot of gas produced. There will be a lot of opposition to it. It is a technology from last century. The price of gas will only go up and they just need to you know, decide which side of the road they're going to be on. We all know what happens when, if you stand in the middle of the road, you get run over. It makes sense for them to step fully into the realm of renewables and batteries and it's unfortunate that they're continuing to kind of peddle this, you know, gas will bring lower prices and gas will bring jobs narrative. Uh, well, actually, before we finish, uh, part of that narrative is actually the back, background backdrop of uh, the federal LNP government. Uh, having seen the uh, government representative uh, talk about their policy before the election, they should never have won. Uh, it was all about, he actually sat there and said, it's all about fracking, fracking, fracking and uh, gas exploration and uh, how they were going to take the power from the gov- uh, the state governments and roll over, roll, steamroller them, right? So it, it seems to me that uh, if you're a political operator, as all state governments must be, that uh, there must be a kind of uh, poker game going on here as well. Is that your impression? Yes, yes, because the Commonwealth had tried to link uh, the GST payments to the lifting of the moratorium and the Victorian government, to its credit, did stare down that particular game a couple of years ago. But the federal government is absolutely obsessed with this concept of the gas-led recovery and they've put that $600 million bucks of our funds into the gas plant up in the Hunter, even though it will lose money every year and could lose up to a billion dollars of money over its lifetime. They've released this this massive area of offshore um, acreages, uh, 21 blocks, you know, in northwest WA and Victoria and Tasmania. They're obsessed with this concept of the gas-led recovery. They're talking about gas as a transition, which was an argument that made sense in the 1990s. It doesn't make sense now because the cost of renewables and the cost of storage has gone down so much that oil and gas can't compete anymore. And we are in the process of doing a transition into renewables, and yet the federal government is just obsessed with gas, obsessed with fossil fuels. It's stuck in the past. There are too many climate denier ideologues that are running that particular party and so you can't get sensible policy on energy and climate out of the current federal coalition and that is just kind of you know the reality that we're dealing with. So really the message is hold the line and make it possible for uh, our future to be uh, sustainable. Yes absolutely stay engaged we won the moratorium we won the ban on fracking 
because people, you know, got on their feet and got organised. 75 communities across regional Victoria declared themselves coal or gas field free. We won through people power. We can win again through people power. The offshore um, acreages, um, bids won't be complete on that until March next year. We've got plenty of time to influence that. And in Victoria, um, we've launched a thing called Drill Watch, which is easy to find if you do a web search which will kind of tell you how to resist the onshore gas um, uh, proposals that are going to be coming in Victoria. You know, if you don't fight, you lose. You've got to stay organised and you've got to stay hopeful and you've got to stay smart uh, in how you organise your campaigns. And we'll still be there. Lots of people will be there. We can still win on both of these fronts, the onshore and the offshore. Thanks, Cam. Thanks a lot. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. For some reason or other, this is the week that was is not playing. So we'll see what happens. We'll try it again and see if it will give me a better result. Something going on with uh, Dinner Sat today and uh, it just isn't doing what it's supposed to do. So I'm not sure what's going on. I'm sorry for all you people out there who have been dying to hear what uh, Kevin has wanted to say, but uh, for some reason or other, it's just it's there, but it won't play. So um, I'll have to move on, I think, and uh, play you a little tune while I uh, uh, rustle up our next interview. Um, let's see, what have we got? Let's see. I'll take you down to something here. This one. Every day will be a holiday. Baby 
You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got Andy Payne on the line. Uh, G'day, Andy. You're from uh, Frontline Action Against Coal. You're up there in Queensland and you're defending our our rights to a sustainable future at the uh, Adani Carmichael Mine Edge. How are you going? I'm going good, thanks, Annie. How are you? Good. Now, you sent out a, um, a, a notification last week that uh, activists had stopped the uh, Adani rail line. Uh, uh, but, uh, the, uh, of course, that, those actions are important and uh, they activate people's uh, awareness of what's going on. But uh, it's been a long struggle to stop, uh, and an international struggle, to stop uh, Adani getting any financial support. But there's been a little bit of a leakage, hasn't there? Um, well, yes, it has been a, a long struggle uh, from people in Australia and around the world against Atani and in particular about the Carmichael mine. But, of course, we've got to remember in India there are people protesting against the proposed God of Power plan as they did against Adani's dumb report. And so there's lots of struggles against Adani. Um, and... Yeah, the the financial sector is one way that we've had some success here at Frontline Action on Coal. We want, our specialty is those actions where we get in the way and physically disrupt um, that line and that infrastructure being built. But the other side is that there's a a real push to, um, to stop these investment companies, the companies that care about their perception in a time of potential climate crisis and so to pressure them not to support this a disastrous coal mine and so we have over the years we've had quite a bit of success on dissuading some of these uh, banks and financial institutions to invest in Adani and and that continues. Yeah yeah because you actually the, uh, the, the actions are all around making these large institutions actually walk the talk like they put uh, up their uh, prospectus and talk about how they're investing in uh, a, sustainable, a sustainable future and et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at the fine print, you'll find that they've got investments in things that are actually fossil fuel and uh, actually um, quite disastrous. And so now there's a whole crew of uh, financial institutions who have actually bitten the bullet and see, uh, have withdrawn. But there's a Japanese company that now has come to the fore. Uh, it's um, what, MUFG. Yeah, um, MUFG. I suppose there's a, some of the biggest investment companies in the world are now what we're targeting, which is no sort of small goal. You know, we thought stopping a huge coal mine was hard. Now we're talking about some of the biggest, richest companies in the world. Um, MUFG is... One of them, uh, also companies like HSBC and BlackRock, but we'll we'll take one at a time if if we can. Um, and so, yeah, MUFG, a huge, huge company. It is. It's uh, the like the Mitsubishi Group, um, and they invested in most of the big corporations around the world. You know, MUFG have money in them somewhere, and so this is. Where we're trying to target them, and as you say, trying to make sure that they can't get away with kind of 
talking the talk about climate change while just pocketing the cash from the destruction of our planet. And so it's about uh, leveraging that, you know, that kind of talk and that pressure, but also, um, you know, trying to hold these financial companies accountable to protect our climate. Now, let's go back to the Carmichael mine itself. Now, uh, they've found coal, apparently. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Adani, uh, a couple of weeks ago now, were um, posting on their social media that they had hit coal and they had a few people holding lumps of coal. We, I suppose we knew this was going to come at some point. It, it is worrying um, that it has come this soon. But at this stage, that coal is still remaining in the ground because Adani haven't yet built a coal handling and processing plant. They haven't finished finish their rail line, that's still a long way off completion. And so, and you can't really stockpile coal because of the risk of combustion. And so the, they'll be digging other places in their pit at the moment and they'll be leaving that coal seam as it is for now. But it is very concerning for us and for all the people over the years who have put a lot of effort into trying to stop this mine that um, are done, they're really progressing quite quickly now. And so um, it's things get a little bit more urgent. The um, Adani, uh, the company, uh, like you were int- uh, intimating, like uh, the destruction of, uh, uh, you know, the, what, what Carmichael Mine actually represents is a, a massive destruction in uh, and threat to things like the water aquifer and a large ex- extension of land um, against the traditional owner's uh, dis- desire. But uh, they um, have fingers in a lot of pies, and in in India, they're in the process of uh, 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 changing, trying to change the uh, agricultural landscape and land ownership processes in India, which could potentially impoverish, you know, thousands and millions of people. Yeah, I mean, Adani, I just. Uh immense company in India and their their wealth is very tied up to the corruption um, of that country and they're very closely tied with the uh, Bharati Janata Party, the currently party currently in power, Narendra Modi. Modi and Adani go a long way back, both from Gujarat. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I was in India five years ago now and when the mine was just a proposal and um, chatting to Indians about, I was like, oh, in Australia, the politicians are saying that Adani's going to help um, the poor people of India. What do you think about that? And everybody just laughed. Like the his track record in India when it comes to the poorest is just terrible. You know, it's just one of displacement of taking land off um, people who uh, have uncertain land tenure and just... Uh, bankrolling policies by the BJP, which have been disastrous for poor people, and continue, you know, out of vastly the sort of poor Indigenous people of India are continuing to protest against the Gotta Power Plant, which is where the coal from the Carmichael mine is going to go. And that's a long campaign there, and um, one that, you know, there's Adivasi people in jail right now for standing up for their rights, and so it is... Uh, there's many levels of this struggle, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every way you look. Uh, and uh, it's, it's interesting because as you were saying that uh, you guys are on the ground and activism 
has taken because Adani is this sort of octopus uh, of um, uh, that melds sort of governmental corruption with uh, the greed of um, of an entrepreneurial uh, shapeshifter. Really, um, activism across uh, the world have has become equally complex and sophisticated, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's been a really interesting campaign, the Adani campaign, in the different tactics that people have tried. And I think one of the real successes was targeting individual contractors who would work on the mine and pressuring them. And um, and we knocked out a lot of contractors, some of which are huge. You know, Downer EDI is a gigantic sort of infrastructure company in Australia. And if you believe Adani's current lawsuit against activist Ben Pennings, they're saying that um, it's cost them billions of dollars for not having that contract with Downer EDI. There was a big push against Downer saying don't work on the Adani mine, and they didn't. And so that was a real win. And I think, yeah, the divestment campaigns are, are really interesting because... There, this is, you know, it's not necessarily the companies that directly make money. It's white collar workers who are interested in their perception, who are, you know, trying trying to invest in the knowledge economy, the sort of professional classes as well, and so they're a bit more susceptible to pressure. And so I think there's been a lot of successes and a lot of uh, really creative actions in this campaign, and that's something to celebrate, even as we're sort of. Uh, sweating on, there's a, a lot of work to do to try to stop the mind still. Yeah, so what's the next step for you guys there? Uh, well, we'll keep going. Of course, COVID travel restrictions make it very difficult for people to come up to um, the Camp Binby um, up here in central Queensland. But we'll we'll keep going, uh, both trying to pressure these financial companies and when we can, trying to disrupt the construction of this mine. Uh, it's really getting down to the business end of the campaign now. And so uh, if people can get involved in some of those Stop Adani um, campaigns against to lobby these financial institutions, a lot of them can be done at home on the computer or the phone, then um, that's really helpful because it, the COVID pandemic presents its own challenges for doing these frontline activism. But, yeah, we'll keep going, um, both pressuring financial institutions um, and as well as trying to put our bodies in the way of the mine. More strength to your arm, Andy. Thanks for, for talking to me. Thanks, Annie. Gather around people, I got something to say Some folks might think it's just another cliche But well, there's blood on our hands, we got blood in the streets We gotta get together, start singing for peace I know sometimes that it might hurt We gotta take a stand, throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works, my friends well, I've seen it all so many times before Rich man, he comes knocking at your door Fooled you into thinking you could own a house Now he's 
Telling your family that they gotta move out You're paying last week's bills With next week's wages Don't be waiting round for no profits or saviors Cause the church owns most the land in this world But there's still plenty of homeless boys and girls Well, I know So on and on and on with the ghosts, my friends But the wind still blows and the creeks haven't flowed till the end And where we're headed, well, ain't nobody knows, my friends But the tides are washing and they wash it all away again Come too far from the days of the cave Now we're all just walking, talking Multinational slaves And they charge us too much They pay us not enough Getting to where it's going And the going will be tough And they smash the unions And the public schools This country's run by bigots And bludgers and fools The squeeze on the poor's getting tighter One man's terrorist Is another's freedom fighter I know Well, I know sometimes it might seem hard But if we don't learn from history, well, we won't get far You gotta stand up to your devil, look him in the eye Say, come on, man, well, I'll see you outside You're hurting all of the ones I love So I'm gonna start to push when it comes to the shop Know sometimes that it might hurt We gotta take a stand, throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works, my friends But I know sometimes that it might hurt We gotta take a stand, throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works, my friend Throw a spanner in the works Throw spanner in the works, my friend. And that was uh, Jack Mancor, Spanner in the Works. And you're with uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Coming to the end of the program, I do really apologise for the lack of This Is The Week That Was. I've got three versions of it here, but none of them will play, so absolutely no idea why Dinosat's uh, having a hissy fit. But uh, I apologise. Sorry, Kevin. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, we're going to go out with a um, in the last little bit. Um, I was uh, doing a little bit of a trawl of the of Facebook, and uh, this extraordinary piece was on there, and I just thought I'd have to share it. You may have already heard it, but I, I'm not sure. Uh, things that turn up there disappear, and you can't find them again. This is uh, Professor Hu Ni K Trask. Uh, it's her voice. Uh, she was. Uh, it's from 1990. She's from Hawaii, and um, it's so pertinent to today that um, I, I was and, and listening to it. It was like washing my face with uh, very cool, delicious water because she's so succinct and clear about, as a um, First Nations person about the uh, connect. Uh, the rights of First Nations people and uh, the homage that uh, uh, um, colonialists, 
need to play and uh, uh, and uh, tribute that has to be paid, um, uh, and uh, you know back back taxes effectively, uh, and um, she apparently uh, passed away uh, very recently, and so uh, it is a great honour to uh, honour her voice, uh, assuming that Dinasat allows us to hear what she has to say. Yeah. And Kay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, I just would like to comment that it's very telling that the first thing you open the show with is a statement about Hawaiians would benefit from one less Hawaii in Hawaii. That is what Hawaiians always pick on. They never want Have to you talk said that about history. The, oh, you... listen. I this is my opportunity to speak, and now mm -hmm. I'm going to speak. They never want to include the history. And as you know, because you have the article with you, that statement is made at the end of my argument. The argument is preceded by a defense of the word Howley, which we need to start with Mr. Carter. Mr. Carter, who is a 32-year-old student, or was, is Howley. He wrote into Kaleo, the student newspaper, saying he didn't like the word. He thought that the use of the word was Howley bashing. That was part of his argument. My reply to him was a defense in the very first paragraph of that word. Why did I defend that word? Because the Hawaiian language was officially banned by an all Howley government, Bob, in 1900. I'm That's not, very I'm important. I'm not speaking those historical Let me have my say. Let me say, I didn't like his letter any better than I like no, yours. Let, but let me ahead. have my say. <laughs> You've had a long time to <laughs> interpret <laughs> what I said. I want to say to the listening, viewing public, what is consistently left out of my analysis. That includes your, what you left out, what the philosophy department leaves out, what everybody else leaves out. And that is the history of white supremacy, not only in Hawaii, but in the United States. I mentioned in that same article that in the American Constitution, blacks were three-fifths of a person. That was also left out by yourself and by other people. I mentioned genocide and removal of American Indians. I mentioned the fact that Asians were beaten because they were called the Yellow Peril, and that Japanese were interned during the Second World War, and that Native Hawaiians were dispossessed and their lawful government overthrown. Now, to leave all of those things out, and there are many other things that I haven't even mentioned about the contemporary status of Native Hawaiians, is really to inflame the response of the listening public who says, well, wait a minute, why did she say that? And my response is, I am saying that not only because it is historically and factually correct, Hawaiians would certainly benefit from less Hawaiians in Hawaii. Many, not just one, but thousands, as Tahitians benefit from less French, if if it can't be no French, as the Maldives would benefit from no Pakehas, as American Indians would benefit from no white Americans, because those people are settlers in native lands, and they are living on stolen land. Now, my advice to Mr. Carter was, you had better learn where you are, the same advice I give to the philosophy department, which is in Hawaii. You are not in some white place, otherwise known as Europe. You're in a native place, and you are living on stolen land, so you have an obligation, number one, to understand the history of that place, which Mr. Carter does not want to understand, which Mr. Loudon of the philosophy department does not want to understand, and number two, you owe us something. Now the question is, what do people owe us? Howleys owe us getting rid of their ignorance. They are so ignorant about Hawaii, they think they can fly here and say, oh, well, we're a numerical minority, we're unhappy here. Well, what I say to them is, learn where you are. You are not just off the coast of Southern California, you are in Polynesia, a stolen colony 
That's what we are. We are a stolen colony. The United States has colonies. We are colonized people. Number two, learn the history. That's what I was trying to say to, uh, to Joey Carter. Learn the history of white supremacy. Now, what does white supremacy consist of? Well, Mr. Carter didn't know this. Our language was officially banned. All Hawaiian language schools were closed. Who is Mr. Carter or any other white person to tell a Hawaiian we cannot use the word haole? That is our word. Now, white people don't like that because they're used to being the people who name other people. And so they come here and they think that that word is a bad word. They think it's, it's pejorative. It's not pejorative. It's descriptive. Just like my, the name we have for Hawaiians is now Evie in Hawaiian. We are the native people. The other thing Hollies need to understand is what are the contemporary conditions that Hawaiians endure today. Continued land disposition, continued water loss, continued bad health, which we just discussed last night. All of these things, Hollies owe us. Just as if you went to Kenya or you went to Tahiti or you went to Palestine, you would owe those people there an understanding and a respect for their culture. And Mr. Carter has no respect for Hawaiians. So he complained about the word Hawaii. He complained about being what he said imposed upon. And my response to him was, if you don't like it, you can leave. There you go. Um, I just thought, my God, uh, this was from 1990 and uh, the clarity of her voice is so clear. And uh, obviously it's a sad thing to say that uh, such a voice has passed. P Professor Hayunani K. Trask from Hawaii. Uh, and uh, this, this morning uh, we've had a little bit of uh, problems with uh, Dinosat, so I didn't get to actually play uh, Kevin's piece, uh, which was, I can tell you, very amusing and very interesting and to the point, but uh, perhaps we'll be able to do something about that later at another time. Uh, today we uh, heard from uh, Professor Anne Toomey from the... Uh, uh, Constitutional Law uh, Department and Director of the Constitutional Reform Unit at um, Sydney University, uh, who was giving a very clear understanding of why it's not just business as usual that uh, politicians pork barrel with uh, public money to ensure that they can uh, buy their own uh, buy votes to get themselves back into uh, Parliament, that it's uh, it's uh, a, an outrage and uh, they should be brought to account. Uh, and they shouldn't be uh, flattered and uh, given the vote for their ongoing corruption of our democratic system. It's not just business as usual. And uh, Professor uh, Anne Toomey uh, was, has, a, has a very clear voice uh, and uh, structured argument around why it's such a problem uh, that uh, we have incompetent politicians who no, not only pork barrel but actually do not understand their role as members of a government and the rule of law. It's a disgrace, as they say on the picket line. It's a disgrace. It's not just bad. It's a disgrace. Uh, and uh, after that, we talked to Cam Walker, who clarified the issue of uh, the apparent... Um, uh, gas, um, the end of the uh, prohibition of uh, gas drilling onshore, but not fracking. Uh, fracking still on the uh, is banned in Victoria, but uh, uh, there is um, an opening for uh, 
uh, unconventional gas exploration in um, on uh, 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 an industrialisation of our uh, country rural areas as uh, as they try to explore for gas, which we don't need and which we probably should. Uh, stop from happening. But anyway, a very interesting conversation with Cam. We had a chat with Andy Payne up in Queensland about what's going on at the lip of the Adani mine at uh, the uh, Carmichael debacle up there. And another thing that we don't need, uh, jobs, sustainable jobs, a just transition, that's what we need. Um, I'm going to play go out with um, a fairly long track by uh, John Butler Trio. It's called Ocean, so enjoy.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.